0: Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Are you ready for some football? Well, Walters is, and Walters has all of the games for you all weekend long. Reservations are limited and can be found on all Walters social media channels.
1: Walk-ins will also be available, but will be on a first-come, first-served basis. So don't get left out and make your reservation today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search
2: for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
3: Now the pitch swung on. Avila pops it up on the infield. It's playable. From the overshift, the right side, second baseman Rogers under it. He makes the catch, and the game is over. And the Rockies have blanked the Nationals on eight hits here this afternoon. They win the first two games of the series. The Nationals suffer their third straight loss, 50th in the last 70 games.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, September 19th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, for a while on Saturday, there was a rainbow above Nationals Park, a glorious rainbow, something that usually signals optimism and good feeling and good vibes. And the Nationals could certainly use that right now. The rainbow was not indicative of what we ended up seeing at Nationals Park on Saturday, a 6-0 shutout loss to the Colorado Rockies as the Nationals, who went months without having suffered a shutout loss, now have suffered two shutout losses within the week. You had that three nothing loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park on Monday night. Now this six nothing loss to the Colorado Rockies on Saturday. But whereas the offense was not good on Saturday, the headline item from Saturday is another terrible outing from Patrick Corbin. I don't know, man. The rainbow was not indicative of the game. And it certainly is not indicative of the national season. Patrick Corbin was a wreck again. And Mark, any idea, any notion of him like finishing his season on a high note? That's dissipating here with the season now having just two weeks left in it.
1: Yeah, that's the problem. I mean, he had those two that were quality starts prior to this one. And you thought, okay, maybe you can get a little something going on there. And it just fell apart today. I mean, there was nothing. Two batters in, you knew three pitches into the game double off the wall on his second pitch Homer on his third pitch for the first five batters he faced hit the ball at least 103 miles an hour off him it just set the tone for the day and I, I you know I'm not even going to get on the offense on this one because when you're trailing six nothing it's kind of hard to summon the the energy to try to mount another comeback and look this is happening way too often with Patrick Corbin he has now given up six or more runs in fewer than five innings, sorry, six times this year. And that is the most in Nationals history in a season. So when he's bad, he's really bad. And it's been happening consistently. And there's no reason to think that all of a sudden that's going to change now in his final two so starts. I mean, I think we're we're past the point of thinking that he's going to salvage anything. It's It's a lost season for him and just has to go home, regroup, and hope that next year things are better.
0: Yes, this is no longer a rescue mission. This is now a recovery mission when it comes to Patrick Corbin's season. It also does go to show you, so his last outing had been a pretty good one, two runs and seven innings in the 6-2 win at the Pittsburgh Pirates last Sunday afternoon. And, you know, we had the inevitable conversation of, well, was that more Corbin being good or the Pirates just being the Pirates? And the answer is the latter. It was the Pirates being the Pirates. We've seen Corbin do this this year, have some good outings against some really bad teams, but inevitably. He's right back to struggling and struggle he did on Saturday. Six runs, five earned in four innings. He gave up nine hits, two homers, four doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks. He did have five strikeouts, but he threw 87 pitches over the four innings. And like you said, from the get go, this guy was having issues. Top of the first allows three runs, two earned. The Nats are down two nothing after just three pitches by Corbin, who gives up a leadoff double to Garrett Hampson, followed by a first pitch, two run opposite field homer by Brendan Rodgers to right center field. Corbin in the top of the fourth gives up three runs as he allowed three consecutive Rockies to reach base with one out. One out five pitch Walker Garrett Hampson. One out single by Brendan Rodgers. One out three run opposite field homer. by Trevor Story to right field for a 6 nothing Rockies lead. Corbin with that last outing against the Pirates did get the ERA for the season under six. That's no longer a thing. ERA ballooned back up to six eleven in this game. 29 starts this season. He is the worst ERA among qualified pitchers. In the majors, 36 home runs allowed. That long ago was a record for most home runs allowed by Nats pitcher in a season. He broke that record weeks ago at this point. So I was thinking about this with Patrick Corbin. Interested to get your take on this. So one of the things about the sell-off in late July that to me remains notable is how like unapologetic and aggressive the Nationals were with that sell-off. And I go back to when Mike Rizzo spoke to you guys weeks prior to the sell-off and said, you know, we could go either way on this. I almost wonder sometimes if he had his mind made up at that point, and he was basically saying to himself, "Unless I'm convinced otherwise, we're gonna sell off here." He seemed to be at peace.
2: We'll attack the trade deadline, uh, you know, like
0: we always do. We'll be aggressive uh, in, in whatever we do. It was unusual. He was more open with you guys than he normally is when it comes to selling off. And so, in other words, in upper management with the Nationals, there seemed to be this recognition of things are not right here. We need to change things, and change they did with that sell-off, with the continued struggles of the pitching. Do you think we could be in for a uh, a winter of darkness when it comes to the Nationals and the pitching. Major change, maybe organizational change, maybe people losing their jobs, maybe people being reassigned because we have had this complete implosion of the pitching staff this year. And it's a second consecutive bad year for the Nationals pitching. And as we've noted, guys are getting worse and not better. And it's like, this has become an undeniable thing and it's become impossible to ignore do you think we could be in store for some real change with the Nationals, either organizationally or roster-wise, because of this this awful pitching that we've seen really throughout this season?
1: Well, all right, let's start with organizationally. And I assume you're talking about the coaching staff there. We have to remember Jim Hickey's in his first year. They did make a change getting rid of Paul Menhart last winter, despite the fact that he was the pitching coach in mid-season change that helped them win a World Series. And one year later, he was out of a job. And so they brought in Jim Hickey, a veteran uh, with ties to Davy Martinez. It hasn't gone well, obviously, and perhaps there is another change to be made there, although like we've discussed, at some point, you have to stick with a staff. You know, I don't think change for change's sake is gonna do anything. So I don't know. I guess that's possible on that front. On the actual pitchers themselves front, I mean, what are you gonna do? You're gonna release Corbin need all the money the rest of the way?
0: No, not release him. But you know, for next year maybe he's in the bullpen sooner rather than later you know maybe if he's if he gets off to a bad start you don't play around with this for a third straight year you know when it comes to all these other guys these relievers you know the uh, the eric fetties of the world even maybe the joe rosses of the world you just see a lot of change that the nats kind of say enough is enough with these guys we can't have this happen again i mean the pitching has completely collapsed this season in a way that is really staggering like we we kind of become numb to it because you know we we see these games every day essentially but this is really drastic what has happened to you
1: so i agree with you on all that i did kind of ask davy the question not so much about in the future but even just for the final two weeks that if you had in almost any situation a pitcher with an 8 and 15 record and 6.11 era who's been out there every game all season long you probably at some point would just say, all right, you know what, we're going to give you a start off or we're just going to move you to the bullpen to finish out the season, just kind of let you coast into the finish line.
3: Moving forward, we need them to start. I mean, you know, right now, you know, if you think about uh, 2022, you're looking at, you know, Strasburg coming back, you're looking at, you know, you're looking at Corbin uh, you know, and then some of our young guys. So, you know, I want to continue to run him out there every five days until, until this is over, see if we can get something going for him. And then he can build off of that uh, over the winter time. But, um, we need to get him going. Like I said, I want to finish up strong this year.
1: And at least in Davy Martinez's mind, whatever hope they have of making some real strides in twenty twenty two is dependent on Patrick Corbin and Steven Strasberg being part of the equation in the rotation. Now, that may or may not happen, as we know. That's a lot to ask, and you can't just assume either of those things is going to happen. But not not to go completely off the rails here, but I looked this one up today and I think it's pretty telling. Steven Strasberg, throughout his entire career, is the linchpin. He determines if the Nats are a good team or not. There have been six seasons in his career in which he's made 24 or more starts, and the Nats have made the playoffs in five of those six seasons. The only one they didn't was 2013. There have been six seasons in which he did not make 24 starts, and the Nats are now 0 for 6 making the playoffs. Now, obviously, there's a lot of other factors involved, but number one, you can point to if Steven Strasburg is healthy almost every time this team's been good and good enough to make the playoffs, and if he's not, they haven't. So I think in their minds, like I said, at least in Davy Martinez's mind, they're going to go into this winter and into next spring hoping, not counting on, but hoping for healthy Strasburg and bounce back from Corbin combined with Gray and Cavalli, whatever else they have, and hope that that is a path to improvement. And if it doesn't happen, then now we're talking, you know, May, June next year, maybe there are some changes that have to be made. But I think in their minds, at least that's the way they're going to approach this winter.
0: Yeah, I just think that's really being hopeful and optimistic, especially with Strasburg. I think that's almost delusional. If you're really trying to be good for next season and your plan is Strasburg's back and healthy and we fix Corbin, and and those are like two big parts of your plan, I mean, good luck on that. I don't know how you can, never mind count on that, but even be that optimistic that both of those things happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't try for those things to happen but especially with Strasburg and the TOS, I mean, I just don't know how you can in any way plan for him to be a part of the rotation next year if he is great, but it's a little disturbing. Now, maybe Davey's just saying this publicly and maybe internally the conversations are different, but like, if you're trying to be good next year and that's your plan, uh, I'm sorry. I don't know the likelihood of that working out. I don't get that approach, if in fact that is the approach. But you you mentioned, I'm talking about the pitching coach. I was in part, but not entirely do you think we could see organizational change? They don't develop pitchers. They don't get pitchers to be better. I'm not going to pretend to know who is at fault. If anyone's at fault, maybe the Nats are doing all the right things and it's on these pitchers for not getting better. Like there's a lot we don't know here. But again, this complete failure of the pitching staff this season, going back to last season, do you think it could be that Rizzo makes some front office changes in terms of the Nats this year because the player development for pitchers has been so bad for so long now?
1: Well, they are going to have a new pitching coordinator next year because it's for a very different reason. Brad Holman, who's been their coordinator essentially since Paul Menhart was promoted to the big league staff, elected not to get the vaccine and has been let go. So if nothing else, they're going to have a new pitching coordinator next year. I agree with you that that's where it all starts at the development level. There's a couple things here. First, we talk about, well, they haven't drafted well and scouted well, and that may be part of the equation. But I think that we also have to acknowledge that they have not developed nearly as well as they could have because they have drafted pitchers in particular who, it's not like it's the Nats are the only one who view them highly. You know, these are consensus first round picks for the most part, not all of them, but they're players that other teams would draft if in that position as well. And in so many of those cases, they have not panned out. So yes, absolutely, I think there is a development issue, and I think it is something that they have to work on. And if that's a new pitching coordinator, it can be a new minor league pitching coaches at each different level. There needs to be some stability and a plan, and everybody working in unison. For so long, you, they talked about the Orioles way, the Cardinals of having a certain way, where everybody in the organization did it the same way. Has there ever been a Nationals way? I don't know that there has been.
0: Spend big money on the pitching. That, that's the plan. Spend big money.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I think now is the perfect time to try to institute that. You have an opportunity here on a rebuilding franchise to say, we are going to establish here is the way we do it from rookie ball up to the big leagues. And I absolutely think that is something they should be doing. And I think it's something they probably will be doing. But that's also the kind of thing that takes years to see the fruits of it pay off. You know, that's not something you're going to see all of a sudden come together next year.
0: Another thing I wanted to bounce off you. So many times in sports, when things go really wrong, it turns out that there was a lot going on behind the scenes that nobody knew about at the time. One of our great friends, Tom Lavero, has a saying, when things look bad from the outside, they're almost always much worse. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Things have gone really bad, obviously, for Patrick Corbin. Do you at all get the sense that there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't know about? Like he and Jim Hickey don't get along. There's a personal issue for Patrick or anything like that. Because These struggles for a guy who's this talented and who has had the kind of success that he has had, they seemingly have come out of nowhere, and it it almost feels like there's more to this than we know. Have you ever gotten any sense that there is more to this than we know?
1: I have not, but what I would point out here, and it's been a common complaint of mine all this year and of last year as well, is that I don't have the access that I used to. And when you're with the team every day, home and road and in the clubhouse, you see, you hear, you observe a lot more than we've been able to the last two years. And so it's harder for me to answer that kind of question this year than it would have been two years ago. The one thing I would say is, again, Corbin was pretty bad last year. And we can say, well, 68 teams didn't matter all that. Okay, well, but that was with Paul Menhart. That was, you know, my hunch here is that it's not directly an issue of him and the pitching coach. I think you can say that it's a problem that the pitching coach hasn't been able to help him figure it out, whatever it is especially a veteran like that who has worked with so many veterans and you would think if nothing else that Jim Hickey should be able to do, it should be being able to look back at 2018, 2019 video of Patrick Corbin and saying, okay, here's what you were doing back then when you were really good. Here's how we can get it back again. And who knows? Maybe they are doing that kind of stuff and Corbin just hasn't been able to actually put it into practice. But it really is a baffling thing because this isn't the case if you can say, oh, he's clearly done and, you know, like... He's just never going to be the same pitcher again because he doesn't have it anymore. Like he throws as hard as he did. That was a little bit of a concern last year, but his velocity has been back this year. So it's straight I and mean, he's made every one of his starts. So what is the real reason for it? And I, it's hard to really gauge. I think everybody's, at least publicly, kind of at a loss for it. and You do wonder what else could be going on. Maybe there's a pitch tipping issue they haven't figured out. I don't know. But I mean, when they hit him, they hit him hard and that is... Both troubling and like surprising, because I think it'd be one thing if he was having just a a rough year and you know he's got a four five ERA and you know kind of battling to get through five six innings, but he's gone so far beyond that. Like you said, it's the highest ERA in baseball, most home runs allowed. It's the worst pitching season in Nationals' history. Like, how did you go from where you were in 2019 to that? And I think that's the great mystery here that somebody's got to answer for.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is almost like a Chris Davis situation. I mean, Patrick Corbin in some ways has become the Chris Davis of starting pitchers, a big money contract. And the guy has just completely fallen off and no one really has a good answer for why. Another thing too with Corbin, and I know the Nats don't like to do the opener thing, and I don't expect that to change anytime soon because God forbid they try it again. But his first inning ERA now on the season is 838. So his ERA for the year is six eleven. His first inning ERA is eight thirty eight. It's appreciably worse than the season ERA. If ever there was a candidate to say, hey, why don't we try the opener strategy, eat up the first inning, and then go to Corbin in the second inning, especially in this lost season, you would think these last two months would have been the time to try stuff like this. They have no interest in trying this stuff. They refuse to try this stuff. It boggles my mind that they're not more open-minded to this stuff. But like, here's a perfect candidate. Nothing is working for him. Try something different and they won't do that. And sure enough, what happens on Saturday? He gets smashed in yet another first inning.
1: Okay. I mean, I, that's fair. My only question would be, who are you putting out there in the first inning to face the top of an opposing lineup? Like, who do you have that you're saying you're good? This is, gives us a better chance than Patrick Corbin.
0: I get it. There's not an obvious person, but I tell you what. I bet more than a few people would do better than an 838 ERA. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that is like non-competitive. that that That's non-functional. 838 ERA in, in the first innings of games this year. Try something. I mean, you have nothing to lose. These two months, August, September to me, blank canvas with which you can experiment and try stuff. And I don't see them doing a lot of that. I mean, they had Alex Avila and Jordy Mercer in the lineup on Saturday. They're not trying things, okay? Like They're still doing the same stuff they've been doing all year. And I'm just like, what are we doing here? We got two weeks left in the season. Look, I know they're not going to do it. I get it. But I I did want to express that point because it just drives me nuts when I see it.
1: I think the the most agonizing thing out of all this is that it's just the same thing every five days. And you're like, why are we still doing this thinking it's going to be different this time around? So I get that 100%. Whether it's just a matter of they don't have a viable alternative or they don't want to try to find a viable alternative. I don't know the answer to that but it is pretty maddening just to watch the same thing happen every five days.
0: Over and over and over again.
1: Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202 525 7471, or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K.
2: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data
3: My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. And the pitch. Swinging a ground ball right side down to a knee as Mercer Field. straightens, throws to Zimmerman, and the inning is over. So each of his three innings, Nolan has had the leadoff man on and pitched around it without a run scoring.
0: Corbin was bad. We should say the bullpen for the first time in a long time was actually great. Ryan Harper and Sean Nolan combined for five scoreless innings in this game on Saturday. Harper, two scoreless innings. Nolan, three scoreless innings. You know, it's interesting, Mark, because we've seen so many games, right, in which the national starting pitcher has exited early. Davies had to go to the bullpen to eat up the bulk of the innings. But what Davies had to do, or what he has done anyway, is use like four or five different relievers. In this game, he uses two in part, I guess he hasn't done this more often because those long relievers have become starters, right? Sean Nolan, Paolo Espino, Josh Rogers. But that long reliever approach to me seems to give you a better shot just because you're not counting on like four or five guys having it on that given day. You're counting on two. And on this day, Saturday, two guys did have it in Harper and Nolan.
1: Right. And what you saw was because they're trailing by six runs, he was willing to go ahead and do that and double switch guys out so that he knew you could get the maximum number of innings from his relievers. And yeah, it worked. Now, it was the lowest of the low leverage situations for those two. Who knows what would happen if it's a closer game? But if nothing else, what that did is it saved everybody else for Sunday. So if you do get a, a decent game and it's close late, you can actually have you know, whoever your best relievers are at this point. They'll be fresh and, and available. So that's the benefit of it, that even in a lost game like this where there's really not a lot going on for you, if you can get through five innings with only two relievers, whether they give up runs or not, that's a win for them because you saved everybody else. And so I'll take that as probably the number one, maybe only positive to come out of this one.
0: And I guess Nolan is no longer starting for them this year with Josh Rogers now a part of the rotation?
1: Yeah. Davey said before the game that for now he's in the bullpen, but they wanted to keep him stretched out in case they need him to go multiple innings or potentially start again here at some point. So I think it could happen, but I think it's safe to say that what Josh Rogers has done, he's earned the right to keep starting. There's no reason not to do that. And Nolan, while he was fine as a starter, I don't know. There's a whole lot you need to see from him the rest of the way. So maybe it helps him. Maybe it helps the whole staff to have somebody like that in their bullpen because they haven't had a real long man here for a while who can give you three innings and, and save everyone else.
0: Well, there wasn't much happening with the Nationals' offense on Saturday. Shut out. That's have eight hits, three walks. Here's all you need to know about the offensive performance. Oh, CDS Escobar struck out twice. That almost never happens. I mean, when that guy strikes out twice, you know it's kind of an off day offensively. But we did have another game in which Juan Soto got on base multiple times. The best hitter on the planet continues to rake Juan Soto in this game on Saturday. One for three with a double and a walk. Bottom of the fourth, opposite field, leadoff double to left field. Bottom of the eighth, a lead off seven-pitch walk despite having been down in the count at 1.12. The batting chase is on. It is a fascinating batting chase. I mean, look, personally, batting average to me is overrated, but people get into it and you should enjoy baseball however you want to enjoy baseball. But the fact that it's Soto, Trey Turner, and Bryce Harper competing for the National League batting title, that's pretty cool that it's working out that way.
1: Oh, there's some juice to this one. This is going to be one thing for us to have some fun with over the final two weeks. And as we tape this, it is Trey Turner at 317. He was already finished for the day Saturday. Juan Soto at 315 already finished for the day on Saturday. Bryce Harper, three fourteen and still playing. And I believe, yeah, he was one for two to start the game. So he could gain a little ground before the end of the night. So by the time you listen to this, he may be up there a little closer. But I mean, who would have thought the season could end 1-2-3, Trey Turner, Juan Soto, Bryce Harper? That's pretty remarkable when you think about it. Now, when I put that out there on Twitter this afternoon, I definitely got more than a handful of replies sarcastically from people saying, boy, imagine what a team could do with all three of them together at once. (laughs) Now, look, I get it, but here's what my reply to that would be. You know what? We've already seen that happen. It was called 2018. You know what the Nationals did in 2018? They went 82 and 80. Didn't work. Now, it's not because of them. It didn't work because their pitching was bad that year and they had injuries. And actually, Bryce had a a rough year. But we even saw last year, Trey Turner and Juan Soto were maybe the best one-two combo in baseball and that didn't help them win in a shortened season and the two of them healthy and together for the first half of this year it wasn't helping It's that's great like you want to have that but remember how we were talking about the angels and their issues well that's the issue here the nats sure they could have a lineup that includes turner soto harper rendon and all of them but if you can't pitch it's not going to make a difference and that's the number one issue for the nationals right now they have to pitch again before they're going to be ready to win again
0: Yeah, man. I mean, uh, baseball is not the NBA. It's not just about accumulating superstars. If it was, the Nationals would have more than one World Series championship. It's, it's about a lot more than just having like player X, player Y, player Z, and like that makes you a great team. And we've seen that over the years. I do want to note this, though, when it comes to Juan Soto and Trey Turner in the batting race. Okay. So their batting averages are close. Their on base percentages are not close. Trey Turner's on base percentage for the season is 365. Juan Soto's on-base percentage for the season is a major league leading 460. Juan Soto's on-base percentage is 95 points higher than Trey Turner's. This A is why on-base percentage is a much better stat than batting average because OBP takes walks into account and OPS is better than everything because it takes power into account. But I want to emphasize that if Trey Turner beats out Juan Soto for the National League batting title, good for Trey. But Juan Soto's the better hitter. I don't care what his batting average ends up being. The dude's on base is almost a 100 points higher than Trey Turner's. And I hope that that is recognized. Like, if people want to get sucked into the, you know, batting race between those two, knock yourself out. Again, enjoy baseball however you want to enjoy it. But understand, Juan Soto's better. And it doesn't matter what those batting averages end up being.
1: The difference in walks between the two of them, Soto, 124, Turner, 37 Thirty-seven from a guy who traditionally has hit leadoff, although I think the Dodgers have him hitting third right now. Something I we advocated for around here for a while, and it barely ever happened. Yeah, that is pretty striking. I mean, even Harper has eighty-five walks, which is a good total. It's almost forty behind Soto, who is now six away from Harper's club record for a single season of one hundred and thirty. He's going to shatter that here in the next week. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I don't think there's any question. But you know, traditionally. People pay attention to who the batting champion is, not who the on base champion is. And consider this nightmare scenario, by the way, and Nats fans out there. The batting champion could be Trey Turner, the MVP could be Bryce Harper, and the Cy Young winner could be Max Scherzer. How would everybody feel about that?
0: I mean, that would be jarring, but I would, you know, ask the question of, well, would you prefer the Nats to have not traded Max Scherzer and Trey Turner? you know, and Trey maybe is a little different because he's under contract for next year. But like, because I've gotten a a lot of the feedback I'm sure you have of, well, look at Max, he's doing so well. Yeah, he is. So would you have preferred him to have stayed here and then him leave you for nothing after this season? Okay, like, do you want to go through that again with what the Nats went through with Bryce Harper? So like, I don't know, like, what is that complaint supposed to do? He's a great pitcher. And I said it when he went to the Dodgers. I thought he'd do really well. You know, Dodger Stadium is a notorious pitcher's park. That's a great team with a great front office. So Max figured to do well there, but you're better off having made that trade. Now we'll see what Josiah Gray and Kbert Ruiz end up being, but yeah, like it stings. But what were you supposed to do? If the team was better this year, it'd be maybe a different conversation. But I don't know if Max is still on the team the rest of the season. I don't think the record is that much better. I mean, it's better because he, when he pitches, but beyond that, it's not much better. And you think he's going to resign with you after this season? Heck no. He wants to win. He's not going to stay here. So you're going to lose him for nothing. So I get it. But he's awesome. We knew that. He's awesome. And he's killing it for the Dodgers, right?
1: I think the key point you just said is he wasn't going to resign here. Not unless this team was in a position to really contend again next year. And I think we all understood why that wasn't going to be the case. And that's why they made the move of oh, that's why they made all the moves. They understood that was going to be the case. So I think most, at least what I've gathered, most fans kind of understand why they traded Max. I think there's still a lot that don't understand Turner as much, and I get it. That's a more complicated one. Here's what I would, you know, boil it down to. I think it's fair to question or be critical or really want to look at, did they get enough in return? And we won't know the answer to that for some time. But the idea of trading them away, I think, is pretty sound. And it was probably the right thing to do given the position the team was in. Now, if the players they got in return proved to be busts, then you can fault them not for having traded them, for have, but for not having gotten a better return for them. And like I said, we're not going to know the answer to that one in a while. But to, to have hung on to them just to try to squeeze out a few more wins this year and then probably lose Max in the offseason and probably lose Trey a year from now, I don't think it, that would have really done anything for the long-term benefit of the organization.
0: It would have been moronic and the Nats would have gotten killed for it. And they were right to trade them away. And, you know, they did get back to top 100 prospects, which these days for these sell offs is not bad. Now, maybe these guys don't end up being worthy of having been top 100 prospects. But in the moment, I mean, I remember our reaction to the trade. It was like, okay, that's something you can maybe work with here. And we'll see if the Nationals are able to work with that.
1: Hey, Nats fans, this is Eric Bramer, play-by-play broadcaster for the Fredericksburg Nationals. Time is running out to see the Fred Nats in their inaugural 2021 season at beautiful new Fred Nats Ballpark. With promotions every night of the week and a talented roster that includes Jackson Rutledge, Jeremy De La Rosa, Brandon Bossier, Yordi Barley, and many more, the time's never been better to see tomorrow's Washington Nationals stars today. Visit frednats.com for ticket
0: information and follow us on social media at FXBGNats for the latest updates. Uh, you can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Jeff Bernstein in Silver Spring wrote us about Max Scherzer. He says, it seems to me that Max's game performances since being traded to the Dodgers are significantly better than his 2021 starts with the Nationals. I will admit that I haven't actually watched too many of his Dodgers starts. It's frankly a little too painful for me. However, what I have seen and I'm aware of seems several rungs better than his early starts This season to Jeffrey's point, Max Scherzer over nine starts with the Dodgers has an ERA of 0.78. That is one of the lowest ERAs in Dodgers history in terms of a nine start span like he's doing things that the likes of Oral Hershizer and Don Drysdale did in terms of like nine start runs of greatness. He's been outstanding. I would point out Dodger Stadium is a notorious pitcher's park, but we also know, look, the Dodgers are a great organization that maximizes talent in a way that, if we're being honest, the Nationals have not in recent years. So if there are maybe some things the Dodgers have opened Max's eyes to, I think that's a possibility. But you know, more to the point, he's a great pitcher, and he's on a great team, and he's doing great things. And I don't think that's really that surprising.
1: And I think he's really motivated right now. And, you know, he won't come out and say that he wasn't with the Nationals, but the way this season had gone here, and as frustrating as it was, and as many times as he pitched well, but wound up losing either because the bullpen blew it or the offense couldn't score him runs or whatever the case, all of a sudden you're on a team that's loaded like that, that's trying to repeat as champions in a good pitcher's park, all that stuff together, and you're kind of viewed as like the – not the savior of the franchise because they didn't need a savior, but like the cherry on top of already – a fantastic ice cream sundae, you're a human being. You're going to be motivated by that. And he also knows that he's pitching for his next contract on top of all that. So I think there is the physical aspect of it, sure. But I also think there's an emotional, mental aspect of this, which is he's reinvigorated right now, probably more as much as he's been since 2019, trying to win his first title with the Nationals. And it is why I do wonder if, depending on how this all finishes out there, if it's almost a foregone conclusion that he's going to resign with the Dodgers. You know, as well as it's going, they're not going to want to lose him, especially with the Trevor Bauer situation, what it is. He's comfortable there. I'm guessing he's not going to want to pack up and move the family again and go somewhere else next year. I think it's pretty good odds he ends up as a Los Angeles Dodger for the next two seasons.
0: Yeah. And the Dodgers obviously can afford him, and it makes a lot of sense. That was a match made in heaven with those two. But I know I get it. It's not fun to watch if you're a Nats fan. But again, would you have preferred them to have not traded Max? Like then what would we be talking about right now? Will you tell us what you think? You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can always tweet the podcast as well, at nats underscore chat. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing that. And uh, if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and just written like a one or two sentence review, please uh, do those things. Uh, They don't take much time. Don't cost you anything. And they help out the podcast a lot. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. We are on the radio on Sunday morning. Uh, the radio version of the Nats Chat Podcast airs on 1061 ESPN in Richmond Sunday mornings at 9. If you're in or around the Richmond area, you can listen on, again, 1061 ESPN. And even if you're not in the Richmond area, you can listen online at ESPNRichmond.com. From Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And we want to leave you with a World Series memory from Laura McClintock, who has quite the tale to tell us about what she experienced in October 2019.
4: Hi, my name is Laura. And I wanted to call in about the 2019 World Series and the memories that you've been inviting, which is just really lovely. So thank you for doing it. Because I think we've all needed some of those memories and, and an outlet to, to talk about them. So what I want to focus on is the NLCS against the Cardinals. And I'll first say that I'm a DC native. I was out of town during this particular series. Um, I went and was dog sitting for my sister. And she is way smarter than me about baseball and most things. Um, (laughs) but we had been to the game five of the 2012 series and I have been to the game five of the Dodgers and Cubs series among other, you know, other games leading up to it. And so when she said to me, as I walked in her door to take over her dog, as she went out to do something else for the NLCS game one, she says to me, Laura, who do you think is going to pitch all these innings? And of course she's right because she's talking about not our big three that was, you know, obviously doing great that year, but also a bullpen that had been a disaster for the first part of the season and that we didn't fully trust going into the the postseason. And so her point was, Laura, don't get Too excited about going into a series with the Cardinals when we don't have enough pitchers to cover all the games that we have to do. Okay, point taken. She's right. But then she hits the road, and I am hanging out with the dog and watching game one. And I will just say that I spent the evening of game one, which was Annabelle Sanchez who, as far as I was concerned, had been, you know, pretty good, but not extraordinarily great for most of the season. He was amazing that night. And he, this is why I want to talk about him, deserves a lot of credit for setting up what was to come. Because he not only covered nearly a full eight innings, it was like, I think, seven and two thirds, But he also was throwing a no-hitter into the eighth inning. I remember texting my sister the blow-by-blow of the game as much as I could without jinxing that he was throwing a no-hitter while she was with her friends, um, trying to provide an accurate accounting of what was going on in this game without jinxing the fact that something special was going on. And then if you remember... Daniel Hudson was on paternity leave, which the whole world was crazed about, because why could he be on paternity leave at that particular moment? But Annabelle Sanchez pitched nearly eight innings, and Sean Doolittle came in and got, I think, either the last three or four outs, if I remember. And I remember closing out that game and feeling like I had an answer to my sister's very understood pessimism. (laughs) about who's going to pitch all these innings and because of the workload that had happened through the wild card game and the NLDS and the Dodger series, when obviously Corbin had been used heavily and he was yet to be, he was going to be used heavily in the St. Louis series too. But it was obvious to me. Like I remember staying up that night buzzing and thinking about and planning who could pitch and, how everybody was going to be on adequate rest because the nature of a seven-game series was going to benefit the pitchers who needed rest and that we were going to actually have it covered. And I, I remember staying up all night. I couldn't sleep after Annabelle Sanchez pitched that game one. I was not at home. I was away and taking care of my sister's dog and staying up all night, texting with friends, and dreaming up pitching lineups, thinking, I understand how it's all going to go down. I cannot say that I ever projected or thought that we would sweep the Cardinals in four games. Um, I happened to be at the game four, where we clinched and swept and where the bumpy roads lead to beautiful places, press conference took place. Um, I was so happy to be there for all of that. And then we all had to stress out about whether or not the fact that we swept and got it all done, that we were too good in the NLCS, was going to mean that we'd have this layoff that would leave us deadened and cold going into the Astro series. But you know, that's where our team spent the time studying and talking and planning and plotting and figuring out a way to deal with the cheating Astros. So I love that whole story. And but honestly, I look back when I think about all that was possible. I look back to what Annabelle Sanchez did that night because the fact that he pitched all those innings, that Daniel Hudson on the paternity list was off the hook for not missing a game, that Doolittle was able to get the final outs, and that we then had Hudson back the next night of game two. He was ready, he was re- refreshed, and that all of our pitchers were on adequate rest going in to the rest of the the NLCS where honestly it was just never much of a contest I mean does anybody remember Max went into sorry I miss him Max went into game two of the NLCS and ended up pitching a no-hitter into the seventh inning after Annabelle did it the night before and that was just their thing that's how special these guys and that team was So I think about those things. That is my memory among many, but that's the one that I thought I would offer to anybody who is still listening to stories from 2019. Thanks you guys for doing this podcast. I really want to say that you have helped me digest what's going on this year and I appreciate your work and um, I'm in for whatever's next. Thanks guys. Bye.
3: Here's the O2. Swing a ground ball, rolled to first. Zimmerman has it down to a knee. He'll step on first. Anibal Sanchez has tossed seven hitless shutout innings here at Bush Stadium in St. Louis.
5: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality.